The California city of Santa Barbara has passed a new ordinance that could result in waiters being put in jail if they give customers a plastic straw. (laughs) I love satire of big, overbearing government. Oh, wait, this is a true story. The new ordinance makes each individual straw distributed a separate violation with penalties up to $1,000 apiece and six months in jail. California lawmakers said the ban on straws and other plastic utensils will have no impact on pollution since Western countries cause very little of the plastic pollution in oceans, but they just wanted to mess with people by showing them how powerful they were and how little they cared about the choices or convenience of individual human beings. The legislators also said the ban would be good for public morals by keeping Archie and Veronica from drinking out of the same malted while cartoon hearts danced around their heads, and it would also be really funny to watch handicapped people try to reach their cups until they fell out of their wheelchairs. After making those remarks, the legislators broke into maniacal laughter and had to be carried away in straitjackets. In a straw poll, 46% of respondents said the straw law was the last straw. 32% said it was the straw that broke the camel's back. 17% said it was straw dogs starring Dustin Hoffman. And 2% said it just sucked. Nonetheless, the lawmakers said those arguments were mere straw men, and they refused to bend on the issue because they didn't have those little ridges that make bending possible and are also fun to pull out and press in like an accordion. While it's true the new law will make it more difficult for Californians to drink their sodas, rest assured they'll still be able to step in human feces left by homeless people and give each other AIDS on purpose without suffering any penalties. So that's all right. By the way, if anyone outside the state can still hear the sound of my voice, please come and rescue me. Please. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. All right, we are back. You know, we have to uh, we have to say we, we're having a lot of trouble with YouTube trying to basically demonetize our our videos on this show. And so we want to strike back. You know, Twitter has been pretty good to me. They have not really shadow banned me as far as I can tell. But I'm up to 90,000 plus uh, followers. So I want where where are the other 10,000 of you? Come on, let's go. Let's get me up. Get me up for over 100,000. Then they'll notice me and they'll attack me and, and ban me. So that's, that's what we want to do. We want to get up to 100,000 uh, on Twitter. Sign up. Go on my Twitter feed. Actually, my, my Twitter feed is pretty good. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a fairly good Twitter. All right. You know, we were talking yesterday, all the stuff I said about negotiations, it is as if the universe is listening to this show. Of course, And of course, it is. That's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Because yesterday I raised some questions about Donald Trump's trade negotiations, but I also talked about the way those negotiations are being covered. The fact that a negotiation is a motion. You're in motion from one place to another. And what the press and the opposing politicians are always doing is capturing Trump at one moment and saying, oh, where's the deal? Or why are you doing this? Now, I've been in a lot of negotiations in my life. I mean, when you do what I do, you're a freelancer, essentially. You're always negotiating. And I have had been in some big, big negotiations and some negotiations on which the future of my family uh, depended truly. I mean, where I, I was on one side was darkness and uh, poverty, and on the other side was wealth and success. And I've been in those negotiations, and of course, I've been in negotiations with. I'm sure a lot of you have been in for houses and things like this. And one thing I can tell you is the the two things that make negotiations harrowing, make them difficult, is one 
you don't want the, the deal to go away, and the other side knows that. And so a lot of times when you're in negotiations for a book or a movie, of course, you have an agent. And the reason you have an agent is because it separates you. It puts you at one remove from the negotiation. But it's still you making the decisions. And I remember sitting through a night of negotiation where truly my family's future was on the line and drinking. I I drank so much brandy that if I had done it on a normal day, it would have knocked me unconscious. I was stone cold sober. That's how tense I was and making very, very uh, high level decisions. But what, what makes you nervous in that case is you don't want the deal to go away. And of course, there are other people, people you love and care about whose future is on the line. But the other thing that gets in your way in a negotiation is the people around you, the people who also have something at, uh, at risk. So for instance, an agent wants to make the deal and he's always going, well, maybe it might go away. It might go away. And sometimes it falls to you to be the hard guy, even though it's your project. It falls to you to say, no, no, I think we can go further. I think we can wait an hour. I think we can, you know, and a lot of times in Hollywood, especially people will say, you have, you have an hour to get back to me. And you should never, I never respond to that. My feeling is, hey, you know what? If you can't wait until I'm, I've made a decision, go away, you know, and I've, and I've pulled that. I have pulled that and it's very tough to do. The, the other people can really get in your way. If you're buying a house, for instance, I'm a very good negotiator for houses because I don't care if a house disappears. I have never loved a house so much that I wasn't ready to let it go if I couldn't get the price I wanted. But, you know, your wife, who was the person who was going to be making a home and turning this house, can get very attached to a house. And you know that she's sitting there and sometimes volubly sitting there, you know, so speaking to you, saying she really wants that house. And that is something that is also spurring you on possibly to make mistakes. So when we're listening to the news, the press has a job to do. It has to report what's happening today. It can't report what's happening tomorrow. And it usually has no idea what happened yesterday. So it's just like, like Rush always calls them the drive-by media. They're just driving by and recording this thing. But you, as a consumer of news, have to understand that the press has has something at stake. In this case, they usually want to see Donald Trump fail or they're like the Wall Street Journal who is afraid of business. You know, they're, they're the kind of... Uh, business guys. They're the guys on the Monopoly cards. That's who they represent. They represent that guy with the mustache and everything. And they're afraid the business is going to suffer. So they're constantly doing what these other people do to you in a negotiation. They're sitting there. This is, where's the deal? What's, you're not doing this. You're not doing this right. So yesterday I was pointing out that there, I, I was holding fire on Trump's decisions because I know that he's in motion and I'm not sure where he's going. And I raised some questions and I raised some doubts. Yesterday, a lot of those doubts were, were answered, I have to say. You know, how do you know, you know, when Donald Trump is at a good day, it's when they stop covering him, when they just, it just van- he just vanishes, the stuff he's doing just vanishes and they go off and find some new silly scandal that they're trying to tout. Yesterday, he had a good day. He has put up these tariffs and threatened tariffs against friends and foe alike, against the Chinese and against the European Union, and the European Union came to the table. I mean, this, this is not victory for Trump. But it is a victory for Trump. And there's no other way to spin this. One of the biggest things you have to do in a negotiation is bring the other people to the table with some kind of similar idea to what you want. That, you know, you do want to make this movie. You do want to go for it. You both want to make it. So at least we're talking about the same thing. Bringing people to the table is a big part of this. And the EU was threatening to go off and make deals with China and make deals with other people. But no, the European Commission, led by uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, showed up at the White House and they said they were ready to talk Now, here's the important thing. They were ready to start negotiations about reaching zero tariffs on both sides. And the important thing here is that was Trump's stated goal, and virtually no one covered it. They kept saying, oh, he's saying tariffs are great. He's saying tariffs are great. 
But he said, I want no tariffs. That's what he wants. So here's Trump announcing this very real success for him. This is why we agreed today, first of all, to work together towards zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will also work to reduce barriers and increase trade in services, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, medical products, as well as soybeans. Soybeans is a big deal. And the European Union is going to start almost immediately to buy a lot of soybeans. They're a tremendous market. Buy a lot of soybeans from our farmers in the Midwest, primarily. So I thank you for that, John Claude. This will open markets for farmers and workers, increase investment, and lead to greater prosperity in both the United States and the European Union. It will also make trade fairer and more reciprocal. My favorite word, reciprocal. <laughs> I like that, reciprocal. Because, you know, what, what's happening here, and by the way, he's emphasizing the soybeans because the farmers are really suffering because the Chinese are striking back against the tariffs that we that Trump imposed on them. The Chinese are striking back against the farmers. And the Chinese, they're no dummies. They know where his supporters are, and they're going after his supporters. But what's happening here? is after World War II, I mean, that's how far back this is going. After World War II, the world was in ruins except for us. The European Union, Japan, ashes, gone, right? And so when you talk about the 50s and how prosperous we were, one of the reasons we were so prosperous, you hear Elizabeth Warren, I heard her saying the other day, we used to have these high taxes and that was our most prosperous time. Yeah, because all the competition had been leveled to dust. I mean, when I say that, I mean literally to dust. Their civilizations were gone. And so you're not competing with Germany because Germany is in ashes. You're not competing with Britain because they're putting themselves back together. We went and made them, brought them back. We wanted a world that was a working world. We went back and rebuilt Japan. We rebuilt Germany. We re and we did it partially with the lonely things where we you know, gave them uh, the Marshall Plan, where we helped them out. But the other thing we did was we gave them big breaks on trade and they're still in place. And all Trump is doing is saying, you know what? World War II is kind of over. You know, it's like it's been a while. It's been a couple of days since World War II ended. It's time to reduce this stuff. So yesterday, Brett Baer had Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. He's obviously the guy in charge of this one. And he explained why this this deal, even though it's just an agreement to talk, it is an agreement to get to a certain place. And and. Uh, Wilbur Ross explains why this is a big deal. Uh, this is the first one to cut one. Well, I think there are several very significant aspects. There were no preconditions to the negotiations, no requirement that we drop any of the 232 tariffs just to get talks to going. As you know, that had been an original EU request. They came very prepared to do business. We came prepared to do business. And I think this really breaks the ground because it has now set the parameters. Everything is on the table. Yeah, I'm talking zero tariffs, possibly. Right. President made clear at the G7, although, as you remember, nobody paid any attention, that his end game is zero tariffs, zero non-trade, non-tariff trade barriers, zero subsidies, and zero barriers to our market access. So four big zeros. 
That, so that's a, that's a big deal. You know, that's that's what there's when he's when you come to the table without conditions, you come to the table looking for these zero uh, tariffs. And and Ross points out there that this is what Trump said. He said, this is the deal I want. And when they cover Trump, they do not pay attention to this. And we'll go get into this incredible uh, uh, conflict that Mike Pompeo had with the Senate yesterday. Just just saying to them, you you keep paying attention to Trump, things Trump says in the midst of negotiation, but you're not paying attention to where he wants to go and what the policies reflect of what they say. And the senators keep saying, we'll play some of this. It's amazing uh, audio. The, the senators keep saying, well, he said this and he says this. And Pompeo keeps saying, yeah, but his policies say this. I just want to play one more cut of Wilbur Ross. I know it's a little bit in the deep weeds, but I did ask this question yesterday. Why, when Trump says, I am buying time, with, for instance, bailing out the farmers. I, I said, well, why doesn't China just say, oh, well, we can outweigh weight him. We can outweigh him. So, of course, because the universe responds to me, that, that this is exactly the question Brett Baer asked Wilbur Ross. I, mean, I just want to say, the reason, you t- the reason you are listening to this show is this is the wisdom show. And one of the parts about wisdom is knowing what you don't know. And like Socrates said, I know that I know nothing. That's what made him the wisest man. I know that I know even less than nothing. So I'm even wiser than Socrates. So <laughs> I asked this question and Wilbur Ross gives this answer. The Chinese have done a very, very good job figuring out the political map and how to target it. But you look at their recent announcements, infusions of capital into the banks, lowering reserve requirements, letting their currency drift downward. They're feeling pain themselves. They're also finding it not so easy to substitute for all of our farm products. You're going to see once they run out of the soybeans that they artificially built up, they can't just get all the beans from Brazil. And here's why. Brazil is 55% of the beans they buy, we're 33%. For Brazil to replace us, they would have to increase their exports to China by 60%. Well, guess what? If Brazil could have done it that much an increase at an economical price, they already would have done it. They didn't have to wait for this conflict. So they're finding it not so simple uh, to deal with their own retaliation. Just to unpack that a little, because I know it's the deep weeds, he points out that China was storing up soybeans, waiting for Trump to do what he did and kind of outsmarting him by trying to go after his base. So China's part, you know, we're in a trade war with China. This is the one thing you have to agree with Trump about. All Trump is doing is fighting back. And yes, is it dangerous? War is dangerous. A trade war is dangerous. But the panic that you're getting from the Wall Street Journal, the in, insane panic you're getting from Republicans in, the, in Congress, you know, it doesn't help in the negotiation. Trump may be wrong. He may have gotten this wrong. He may lose the negotiation, but it doesn't help him negotiate to have all these people uh, jumping on his shoulder saying, what's happening? Well, you know, it's like, are we there yet? You know, it's like listening to the kids. I have to point out. So my one point about this is this was a victory for Trump. It's not it's not victory, but it's a victory for Trump. So how do they cover it? The New York Times, a former newspaper, their headline is with surprise deal, U.S. and EU step back from trade war. Now, who is surprised? What was the, you know, where does that surprise come from? Donald Trump said this was going to happen. Yesterday, we played a cut of him saying, oh, they're coming to the table. The EU is coming to the table. But who's surprised? The New York Times, not Donald Trump. And the networks, truly dishonest reporting. It's worth playing a minute of this. This is the networks trying to spin this as if Trump lost, as if it was Trump who blinked instead of the EU. And I'm not saying the EU blinked. The EU did the sensible thing. They were under threat. The, the, Trump is right about the tariffs. They should be fair. There should be at zero. And here, here's the Nets reporting this. 
To the president tonight, under pressure after his own tariffs igniting a trade war, other countries retaliating, it is many American farmers paying the price. You heard from many of them last night right here. Well, tonight, the president with a new promise. Reaching out to the European Union, he called them a foe just a week ago, but late today calling a press conference outside the White House to say they will now work together. ABC's Terry Moran at the White House tonight. Reeling under increasing pressure from American farmers, congressional Republicans, and nervous Wall Street investors, President Trump suddenly shed his trade warrior persona today and declared a truce with the European Union. Now to the late development that could mean the U.S. and its European allies are stepping back from the brink of a trade war. The president announcing a compromise today with the EU, but offering few details. Yet the nation's automakers and some suppliers say they're already feeling the pain from the trade war on another front with China. That is amazing. That is amazing dishonest reporting. They can't just say, you know, he threatened them, they came to the table. It's got to be, you know, he, he threatened them and he, he came. He came. It's just lying. It is lying. It is just, you know, that is those guys, those guys who get paid a lot of money to go in there and look into a camera and give you information. They took the money. They put on their suits and ties. They went on there with serious looks and they lied. That is what they do. To me, that's amazing. I don't understand. I really don't. I don't understand what that life would be like. I do not understand what it would be like to be putting on my tie and looking in the mirror. And of course, I don't wear a tie, but I occasionally look in the mirror and you're looking in the mirror and thinking, "Ah, I'm going out there and I'm going to sell this crap to people. If it's the last thing I do, I do not understand what that life is like. Got to, I've got to play this Pompeo stuff. It is just so good. Pompeo goes before to talk about the Russia summit and North Korea and all this, and the Democrats hammer him. And Pompeo was, I, I got to say, another big victory for Trump. Just the fact that Pompeo was standing up for him. Uh, here he is uh, talking uh, to Democrat uh, Chris uh, Murphy about the Helsinki uh, summit and the th- this is about the the Russians. Um, yeah, the, this is the cut about the Russians. Let's, let's just play. Chris Murphy is talking to him about what Trump says. And Pompeo is saying, yeah, but watch what he does. Senator, the policies are themselves statements as well. That the administration makes. Well, policies are statements and statements are policies. It goes. No, both that's ways. not true. That's, that's absolutely not true. But people make lo- I make lots of statements. They're not they're not U.S. policy. The president says things. Right. The, the president makes comments in certain places. We have we have National Security Council. We meet. We, we lay out strategies. We develop policies. Right. The so president, how do I know the, the president then sets the course. How do I know the difference between a presidential the, statement that is not a policy and Senator, a statement that is? Senator, here, here's what you should look at. Com- compare, compare the following. Barack Obama speaking tough on Russia and doing nothing. Those not were, true. It, it is true. I understand you want to rewrite the Obama policy on Russia, but that's simply okay, not true. Let's, you let's, organized let's, all let's of go. Europe let's and go, all Senator. of the world. Let's go, let's go task to, task. To, to, to put a comprehensive, unprecedented set of sanctions on, on Russia. So The man um, said he would have more flexibility after I'm not listening. Election. My question isn't about, isn't about, I know you want to turn constantly back to President No, I just want to look at facts and President policy, Obama. Senator. I'm trying to get to U.S. policy. It's what I do. I can't believe that Pompeo says, all right, let's go. Let's go. I mean, it's, it's crappy. And, and, you know, and Murphy backed down after after that. Murphy started asking much more friendly questions because when you're willing to bring up the fact that Obama did try and sell out American defenses to the Russians off camera and got caught on an open mic, he just happened to get caught on an open mic. But but listen to what Murphy is doing. What Murphy is doing is saying, how can I tell what 
the difference between what Trump says and the difference between his po- and his policies and what Pompeo is saying is watch his policies. Trump has a, is a negotiator. He is not just he's not just the president who sends other people to negotiate. He negotiates. He negotiates. And by the way, part of, we were talking about his lousy character yesterday, which I, I talk about all the time. I never never pretend that he's a great guy, but. Bad people make good negotiators. I mean, this is one of the things. You know, I'm kind of a hard case, but I'm actually fairly a pleasant human being. <laughs> but, I, but I can be a hard case in a negotiation. But most hard, really hard negotiators, most really tough negotiators are not nice people. And that's one of the things you're seeing with Trump. And listen, yesterday, a lot of victories. I got to play some more of this Pompeo stuff just because I, I love the, uh, the back and forth. He goes off uh, on... Um, uh, they start talking about the North Koreans who are starting to actually dissemble some of their nuclear things. So Edward Markey says, yes, but have they gotten rid of all their nukes? Have they gotten rid of all their nukes? And Pompeo's like, no, not yet. But listen, things are going well. And he just takes this kind of condescending tone with the senator. It's pretty hilarious. Fear, fear not. Uh, this administration has taken enormously constructive actions that have put us in a place that is far better than in either of the two previous administrations, one Republican, one Democrat. Uh, we have put sanctions regime in place that is unequaled. Um, we are continuing to enforce that sanctions regime. We've made incredibly clear that we will continue to enforce that sanctions regime until such time as denuclearization, as we've defined it, is complete. Pressure on the regime is clearly being felt. We have lots of work to do. But unlike previous administrations, Senator, we have no intention of allowing the UN sanctions, the world's sanctions, that we led the charge to have put in place to allowing those sanctions to either be lifted or not enforced. And until such time as Chairman Kim fulfills the commitment he made, which I am incredibly hopeful that he will, those sanctions will remain. Gonna, we, gonna, we, have, we have not been taken for a right, Senator. Going I, to I, I hope you can sleep a little bit better tonight. One- <laughs> <laughs> you can sleep a little bit better. Uh, you know, Trump had a good, good day yesterday in which a lot of his negotiating strategies started to bear fruit. We will see how he does it, whether he follows through, whether he gets to the end. Some of these things are difficult. But all I'm saying is when you're watching the news, remember, you are watching the nervous wife who's saying, are we going to lose the house? Are we going to lose the house? While you're trying to get the price that you think you can afford because you're looking 10 years down the line to whether or not you're going to be paying a mortgage that's going to compromise your children, compromise their schooling or whatever it is. You know, the nervous wife is saying, are we going to lose the house? And you have to keep your eye on the goal. And that's what the Trump administration is doing right now. Donald Trump is the adult in the room, which is the scariest thought I can think of. He's the adult in the room. But but he had a good day yesterday. I have to talk about this one other thing. The CNN reporter, uh, she Caitlin Collins was barred from a White House event uh, because she was screaming questions about Michael Cohn at what they call, I think, what do they call him? Like a, I can't remember, a spray, a spray where they, where Trump is sitting there and, and they're throwing her out and she's sh- shouting these things. She was barred from a subsequent event. Here is her side of the story. Here's Caitlin Collins explaining what, sh- how she feels, what she feels happened. To walk you through exactly what was going on, I was representing the rest of the television networks during this uh, spray, which is what we refer to it here at the White House, in the Oval Office. We were brought in for the top of the meeting between the president and the president of the European Commission. Both men delivered remarks, and then I and several other reporters started asking President Trump questions. This is a normal occurrence, and it is often our only chance to ask President Trump questions that day, and he often responds to us, Wolf. So to give you a sense of the questions that the White House did not like that we post to President Trump. Here they are. Did Michael Cohen betray you, Mr. President? 
Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Mr. President, did Michael Cohen betray you? Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Mr. President, are you worried about what Michael Cohen is going to say to prosecutors? Let's keep going. Are you worried about what is on the other tapes, Mr. President? Thank you all. Let's keep going. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Why is Vladimir Putin not accepted your invitation? Okay, now there's a disparity between why, why Caitlin Collins says she was banned. She says she was banned because he didn't like the questions. Sarah Sanders, the spokeswoman for the White House, says she was banned because she wouldn't leave the room and she was being rude. Okay, so that's very different and, and really important. This is a very important point. Sanders says CNN was not banned. Only she was banned from that event to punish her essentially for being rude and not leaving the room when she was supposed to leave the room. So there's two different versions of the story. Then Brett Baer came under fire and Fox came under fire for supporting, in, in their words, for supporting CNN on the matter of access. In other words, CNN should have access. Now, first, before we, lest we forget, and this is one of the most amazing pieces of audio or video you will see and hear today, lest we forget, look what happened when Obama had a rude reporter thrown out of the press room. L- listen to what happens. This is the, the only voices you hear besides Obama are the voices of the press themselves. These are other reporters reacting to Obama throwing a reporter out. Listen, you're in my house. <laughs> and you don't start, you don't, no, no, no. come on. It's, it's, it's not, you know what? It's not, it's not respectful when you get invited to somebody You're not, you're not, you're not going to, you're not, you're, you're not going to get a good response from me by interrupting me like this. No, shame on you. You shouldn't be doing this. Can we escort this person out? That is amazing. They're chanting Obama, Obama. This is the press. Is chant, you know, that it's kind of like when they chanted Trump, Trump, Trump. Oh, wait. Yeah, that that will happen when the very minute that hell freezes over. So here's here's the thing. I want to put the other side of this forward, too, though. Back in 2010, Obama got so ticked off at Fox News the way Trump is now ticked off at CNN that he tried to delegitimize them. He stopped giving them interviews. He stopped sending his administration onto their shows. At one point, the White House attempted to block Fox from a round of interviews with the guy they called the Pazar. And the Washington, now at this point, the Washington bureau chiefs of the five TV networks said they would not interview this guy if Fox couldn't interview him. They stood up for Fox. Okay, so it's not that they were always like this. Uh, there was not always supporting Obama. When he tried to delegitimize Fox News, the other networks stood up for them. So here's the thing. you got to split the baby on this. Banning an individual reporter for being rude is all right. But even I, as much as I dislike CNN, they should have access. So you got to say banning an individual, yes. Banning the, uh, a legitimate news network, no. And I, on, in the basis of the First Amendment, inform- free flow of information, CNN should be able to lie and cheat and sell their fake news and still get into the, the White House. But, but she, if she was rude, there's nothing wrong with banning her herself. All right, we're going to stay on. Uh, we, yeah, we'll stay on for an interview with Eli Steele. Eli Steele is the writer, di- editor, director, and producer of the documentary, get this, 
How Jack Became Black. It's about trying to un- enroll his multiracial son in LA's public schools and learning the boy would be denied entrance for refusing to state his primary race. He had to choose which race he was, moms or dads, and moms and dads are both mixed up too. The film attempts to answer the question, why does race still matter so much in America? Mr. Steele was born deaf, but thanks to a program uh, designed to train deaf children in the auditory method, he learned how to hear and speak. His voice is a little distorted, as deaf people's voices sometimes are. For people watching, we have put subtitles on that. Uh, But if you are just listening, if you listen carefully, uh, you, you get used to his voice and you'll be able to hear what he says. Here's Eli Steele, the writer, director, editor, and director of How Jack Became Black. I am deaf. I am black. I am Jewish. White. Native American. So I am... What? What about my kids? Who are even more mixed than me? I get an email from my son at school. You need to pick a primary race. White, Hispanic, Asian, African American, Black. One needs to be chosen. Primary and then a secondary. Primary as in one side is more primary than the other. I'm going to call you and say which one you want to pick. We have to put something. You can deny my kid in education because I'm going to pick a primary race. I'm not one or the other. I'm in this space in between. Race is not an individual choice in America. It is a social choice. Black, your skin color. This is about race. It's not about race. They use the term multiracial or biracial to distance themselves from blackness. But who says that I have to stay in that space? There's so many kids who are being born of this next generation that are not a single race. We're not able to say, oh, I'm mixed because you're forcing me to pick a race. Very tempting to just say, let's just forget it. I'm a human being. I think it's fear. I don't think we as a nation are there yet. They want to stay stuck into the norm of what we're used to. What do we want? Justice! Is race really the driving force in America? Mr. Zimmerman was a white Hispanic. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. It's always going to be that average white male, you know? Privileges whiteness at the top of the scale. They have mistaken white supremacy for personal excellence. We've been trained to put someone in a category. My race does not fit into a box. Here we go. So he would be African-American? Absolutely. Hispanic? Let's say white. Eli, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, Your film is called How Jack Became Black, and it's basically about registering your son at school. But before we get to that, and the the racial craziness involved, but before we get to that, talk a little bit about who you are, what your heritage is, and where where you come from. Um, I was born in um, in, in the 70s to a black father and a Jewish mother. And at that time, we were stored up something to celebrate, it was progress, it was um, the coming together of Americans across the color line. And um, I'm the first one ever, if you think about that, from slavery, segregation ever, to say, I am who I am. I am not gonna be what the government tells me to be, which would be black. Uh-huh. I may be, I am black and I am Jewish. That's just who I am. And uh, that posed a huge problem for identity politicians as they grew up. You know, it's, I mean, you're you're black and Jewish, so you have won the oppression sweepstakes here, yeah. <laughs> and you have a, a handicap, so that's your really identity politics. You've got it sewn up, and now 
Your wife, what's her heritage? It's definitely my ex-wife, and she is the first generation born in, Amer in America from Mexico. Okay, so now you have, how many children did you have? Two, uh, Jack and June. Okay, so, so now, so Jack has now black, Jewish, Mexican yeah, heritage. Yeah, and it gets even more complicated. Um, my ex-wife's uh, stepfather is Mormon. Okay. So biologically, Jack and June, you know, she's 100% Mexican in their hat, but they've got that whole influence. And I mean, there's so many different influences. Plus, uh, America. I mean, they are the most all-American They're all-American, right. So now you take Jack, now you're taking him to register him in public school? Yes. Where, where is this? In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, the okay. The second biggest uh, school district in America. And, and what do they want from you? They wanted me to check a primary race box. A primary race box. At that point, what do you do? I mean, I look at, I look at Jack, and Jack is, you know, olive skin. And what do I, what do I put? I mean, what is he and why, why only one? So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to opt out. I'm not going to check anything. And they're like, no, no, no. You have to pick one or he cannot come into school. He cannot he come into a public school. He cannot he begin his education unless we have that race information. And so to pick a primary race is, first of all, it's picking between his parents. Exactly. Right? And, so, and, and it's also saying that his heritage, which is unique, doesn't exist. He has yeah, to have it doesn't matter. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting for me was these school officials, this is the front line. I mean, they are just, you know, everyday people. They had no idea what they were, what they were doing or any idea why I had to shut this bar. So I went to five different schools, got five different answers. Mm -hmm. Jack went from white to black, black and bald. And, you know, so I was just kind of trying to prove the point that nobody really knows anything. So did you eventually make a choice? Yes. Is black. <laughs> so you made, that's how Jack became black, because he had to get into an L.A. public school. Exactly. Then after I started making the film, that's just a starting point. I kind of opened up to the whole of identity politics in America. And after I kind of started making the film, I said, wait a minute. Is identity politics really a racial order? Because they're really organizing us by race. Uh-huh. And so that's why I just kind of started going deeper into the issue. And um, because I know with identity politics, we um, kind of focused on the Marxist aspect. But that kind of ignores that we live in America and the white supremacy was actually the very first form of identity politics. <laughs> right, right. Because we had the black box, we had the white box. We just reinvented those boxes into the five primary race boxes of identity politics. And so that's why somebody under white supremacy, my father, my grandfather would be black and inferior. And that's why we, we add value to that. And that's why today, you see a whole group of people, like for example, um, Harvard, with the whole affirmative action scandal, they mark an entire race of people as uh, not having a personality to devalue them. And this is done in the name of racial justice. Yep. And that's what racial orders do, is they just organize this by race. There, there are even universities now with dorms for black students, which to me is so appalling. I mean, being from the old school where we're trying to get rid of that stuff. Exactly. Uh, it's appalling. So, so now you make this, there are people in this film who essentially, left-wingers, who essentially accuse you of turning your back on the issue of race. What's the logic of that? You know, I may agree with some of what they say in terms of um, 
policies, you know. And, but why do I have to subscribe to that entire framework of that group thing? You know, um, that's not what I was. That's not my. That's not the promise of being American. If we have the freedom to be able to make choices for ourselves, to to look at everything, and so and but why do I have to give up my individuality to be part of that group? Yeah. Because you know, and well, why why do you do you think why why is it so important to them that you make a choice not just for your son but essentially for you? Why why do you think they they want that? Um, because they believe they they have the belief that that will lead to racial justice. Whoever society with the black policy is going to be, they need people to pledge allegiance to that. And when somebody like me, it's a threat. Yeah. Because it means I'm not going to be 100% your kind of black. And for me, that's what we always talk about. What is black? And for me, black really for me is the stories that come from the responsibility that I have to my heritage. Because I do really feel the responsibility should be the best person I can be because you know, my people suffer so much and they, I wouldn't be here if they hadn't um, uh, found a way to make it possible. Sometimes when you, when you look in race, when you make black policies your focus, sometimes you get locked into that bar of race and you'll see the humanity beyond it. And sometimes you get trapped in that power where you, like for example, you say, um, 75% of black males in California students are not on the, on, the, on the really level, on the gray really level. We say, oh, okay, that's black. They're black, that's why. Mm. We don't move beyond that problem, beyond that label, to the, to the deeper problem. If I say 75% of the male students are not on, on the gray and really level, the next step is, well, what's the problem? Who needs a buyer? How do we change it? So a lot of people see black and they stop there. And so that's sort of what the trap is. That, you know, that is absolutely true. I think they're so afraid. They're so afraid that people are going to put forward uh, some kind of genetic explanation that they're afraid to look at all the other explanations like families, dysfunction, and all, and all kind, including affirmative action, I think, which is, it can be a, Ab a dysfunction. Absolutely, they argue that um, you know, Black Lives Matter could be a much more effective. If you want an organization, if you want to fix police brutality, you have to look at the bigger problem. It's not just black people. I mean, I know the whole history behind the black and police. But we also have to be aware that we live in 2018. Right. And we have a guy, a white guy, that was shot uh, in Arizona after four minutes of uh, contrary direction given to him. How can you ignore that just because he's white? Yep. Yep. And, you know, it kind of brings up a real early story that made me embrace all of who I was. It was a family friend. He was like the Black Panthers in Oakland. He was riding on the freeway ramp with three other black guys. They see a motorcyclist collapse, crash on the, on the ground. They stop, they walk over. They flip the visor, he's white. They flip it back on. Wow. They get back in the, in the car and they drive around him onto the freeway. So that's, that's always been like, okay, that's wrong. We're Americans, we have to look in the whole situation. Yeah. So, so now you've put out this, this movie, How Jack Became Black. What, what kind of reactions are you getting from the right and the left? I'm very surprised I'm getting a really positive reaction from both, um, from our state, what I call the Bernie Sanders left and the Trump white. So the, so the far left 
and the Trump right, that Bernie, the socialist left, likes this movie. Yes, because they, they know the idea and the policy is getting away. They know really? that when you put people in race boxes, you can't go any further. There's nothing, it's a box. That's why it's not a, sure. it's not a pathway to... I'm, I have to admit, I'm startled to hear you say this. When you say that people on the Bernie Sanders left, do you mean the politicians or do you just mean the ordinary people? I would say the people. Okay. Because, um, for example, when I went to a recent uh, film festival in Washington, D.C., and it was a very progressive film festival. And so I was kind of worried what the reaction would be. And uh, the, but the reaction from the audience was very, very positive. There was two uh, ladies next to me who would probably have more of a stake in identity policy. Uh-huh. So we would have a disagreement with them. So I would say that if you have some sort of investment in identity politics or derive some sort of power from it, you're not going to like this movie. Right, right. So the ordinary people know that this identity politics doesn't actually serve them because it puts them in the box. Exactly. But the people want them in the box because that's where, where they get their power from. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, I had um, young children, 17 from a uh, poor neighborhood, coming up to me after the, after the film and they were wearing those suggestive warrior uh, t-shirts. Yeah. And they were just vaccinated. They just wanted to know more. Like one girl, I told one girl, I said, well, we have five race boxes. But we have um, 180 nations, people from 180 nations represented in America. How can you fit all of that into five race boxes? Right. And she was just like, one of your obstacles, tell a friend. So that's how you make little changes like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And why should you do it? You know, let alone how do you do it? Why should you do it? How Jack Became Black, where can people see this? Uh, fortunately, almost everywhere. Um, iTunes, Amazon Prime, and nearly every cable network on on through uh, on demand. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So you either be on the new releases or you just thirst for it. Okay, Eli. Still, thank you very much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Stuff I like. Badum dum. Stuff. Badum. Andrew Clavin likes. Badum. Stuff. Dum. Andrew Clavin likes. Badum. Badum. Stuff. Badum. Andrew Clavin likes. Stuff. Andrew Clavin likes. <laughs> That's a good one. That was good. This is Brian Drexler. We should just do this forever. Right? At some point, I feel we should choose one, but maybe not. Like, um, so, you know, I, I do like to return to the classics from time to time. Uh, you know, the last couple of stuff I like has been TV shows that have been on, really good ones, but still. And the opening, the, the first day of this week, I guess it was, I think it was Monday, I was talking about socialism and how it kills civilizations. And I, you know, I said that it kills it in two ways, especially that it turns people into slaves, which is the first thing, but it also removes God. Socialism is perforce a materialist philosophy. You can't have God and a sense of your own worth and your individuality and then say, oh yes, but the state owns everything you make and the state has the power to disperse your wealth. And to say it's democratic socialism means nothing. That just means the majority is tyrannizing over the minority. To say that a per, what a person does with his time, which is his life, right, what he does with his life belongs to him. His property belongs to him because his property is an outgrowth of his life and his time. His money belongs to him. And when I said that it removes God and that destroys civilizations, there were people, I saw people online just like raging against me. Some of them said stupid stuff like, well, what about the Romans? You know, the Romans had gods. You know, they had different gods, but they were still gods. And I didn't say which god you had to have, although I think it does, of course, make a difference. But 
The, the thing about why does losing God, why does civilizations die the way Europe has died without God? And the reason is, is that you're, that meaning goes out of life. I mean, one of the reasons I tease Jordan Peterson whenever I see him, I'm going to stop doing this, but I try and get him to say, do you believe or not? Because he's a Jungian, and ultimately with Jung, you're basically saying God is a metaphor. You're saying God is a metaphor for very deep evolutionary uh, you know, consciousness in humankind. With God, you believe your actions have meaning. You believe an action can be evil or it can be good. It's not just evil or good to you. It is not just evil or good to human beings. It is not just evil and good because of game theory. It is actually evil or good. And the, and the guy who really drew a beautiful picture of how what happens to people as they act in the moral universe is William Shakespeare. There's a lot of people who say William Shakespeare is a secular writer, uh, the great... Um, Shakespeare scholar of our day, Stephen Greenblatt, who's a wonderful writer, but he insists that Shakespeare is among the most secular of playwrights. And I just believe that's untrue. Shakespeare was writing at a time where if you said the wrong thing religiously, you got burned at the stake. Not a you know a time when you want to be very careful. I believe uh, Shakespeare was a Catholic, actually. And so does Greenblatt, by the way. I think Greenblatt also says he was a Catholic. And what Shakespeare did that I don't think anybody had ever done before is he simply, he didn't preach a lot. I mean, there's Jesus in his, uh, he didn't preach at all. There's Jesus in his place, but he just shows human action taking place in the Christian uni universe, right? So the things people do happen in a world of Christian morality. And he just takes that for granted. And because he took it for granted, we take it for granted. And we don't even know it really, a lot of our vision of morality comes from Shakespeare. It comes from Shakespeare basically extrapolating from Catholic doctrine and putting it on the world. And his characters act within that structure. And one of the things that I believe in, and by the way, I, I'm a very well-read person, especially in the field of literature, because I worked in work in the field of literature and I wanted to know everything about it I could, but I'm not a scholar. So when I say things, I, you know, I know scholars and I know the depth and breadth of information they have. I'm extremely well-read, but I'm not a scholar. And so when I say some of these things, I'm just telling you my impressions, but I cannot think of a villain who exists before Shakespeare, who does the things that Shakespeare's villains do and then suffers because of them the way Shakespeare's villains do. So for instance, let's take two of his villains, Richard III. Richard III in Shakespeare, we don't know about it in history, but it seems in, in history to some extent too, kills his way to the throne. And we first see Richard, he first comes on stage in his play after it's the War of the Roses and one of the long periods of war has ended, and that's where he comes out and says, uh, now is the winter of our discontent, right? This is, he's talking about winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer by the son of York. So his side has won for a while in the War of Roses. And he says, you know, there are two acti human activities. One is uh, war and the other is love. And when war is over, you have peace and then it's time for love. But the problem is he's a humpbacked, ugly little man. And he says, I'm deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this pre breathing world, scarce half made up. And that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why I, in this weak piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain. Now, no, I can't think of us anybody saying that. Not that I'm going to do this and this and so, such and so, and it's bad, but I'm going to become a villain because I'm not cut out to be a lover. I'm too ugly to be 
a lover, so I'm going to become a villain. And he, so he knows the moral universe is there, and he makes an open decision of his own free will and with good motives that he thinks are good motives to violate that moral universe. And in doing this, of course, he d- becomes king. He kills his way to the throne, seduces, kills, murders his way to the throne. And then finally, when the revolt comes against his tyranny, he f- he's waiting for this final battle, the battle where he's going to be killed, uh, Bosworth Field, and suddenly all his victims come back to him. So in knowing that he violated the moral universe, he, beco- he becomes conscious-ridden, and all these dreams and ghosts come back to him. They all have the same message for him, despair and die. That's what they say to him. His wife comes back. He's murdered his wife, and he's, his wife comes back and says, Richard, thy wife, that wretched Anne, thy wife that never slept a quiet hour with me, now fills thy sleep with perturbations. Tomorrow in the battle, think on me and fall thy edgeless sword despair and die. And he wakes up and he cries for Jesus. He says, have mercy, Jesus. Soft, I did but dream, O coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? So knowing that the universe is there and violating it, he becomes conscious ridden and his conscience ultimately undoes him and he dies a terrible death on the field of Bosworth. So that's one way in which Shakespeare is depicting us living within not a free world, not a free space where we can act any way we want, but a world in which our morality comes back and pays us back, even if it's only in the mind. He gets haunted by ghosts, and there's some question about whether Shakespeare actually believes in these ghosts. We think of them as psychological entities, but he may not have. But the other villain is Macbeth, and Macbeth does more than Richard III. He doesn't recognize the moral universe at all. He does, but his wife doesn't. And it, because his wife uh, basically takes him over, and guides him to murder his way to the throne, she violates nature in Shakespeare. Shakespeare had no problem with depicting women as wiser, smarter, funnier, uh, more uh, efficient and competent than men. He's often did that. Portia in The Merchant of Venice, he often depicted women. But but he recognized that women had different natures than men and were set up to do different things. But Lady Macbeth rejects that. She calls on spirits, meaning demons really, to, to, to un- she says, come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. So in other words, women are not as cruel as men, but she asked to be filled with direless cruelty. And she says, take my milk for gall. And later when she's talking to Macbeth, she says to him, you've heard the phrase, the milk of human kindness. That's still something we say, right? This comes from this play. And she says to Macbeth, I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness. In other words, you're too womanly. You're too much, you too have too much of the nature of a woman. Let me be the man here and I will take this over. So when they come to Macbeth and they tell him that his wife has died just before his final battle, it's not just conscience that comes to him. The entire meaning of life vanishes. The entire world becomes a nihilistic universe without meaning. And and it's one of the great nihilistic speech, nihilistic coming from the, phrase, uh, the term meaning nothing. It's one of the greatest nihilistic speeches in all of literature, write, written by one of the most moral writers in all of literature. So he gives this beautiful speech to Macbeth as he's about to die, finding that life is meaning. I'll, I'll read this to you. You know, I think we need we need some dramatic lightning. I'm going to really deliver this speech here. We'll get we'll get. I'll even do my my Macbeth accent, <clears throat> although he's Scottish. I can't do Scottish. I'll do, come as close as I can go. This is Macbeth after he has heard that his wife has died, who has moved him to one murder after another. Love the lighting. Excellent. He says, tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, 
creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Give me the lights back so I can see what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anyway, his life is a tale told by an idiot. It signifies nothing. It means nothing because Macbeth has stepped outside that moral universe. Because, of course, if there is a God, there is also, the, there is also those things that are not God. Anything that exists has things that it is not, has a nature, right? Anybody who says, oh, God is whatever you believe is saying there is no God. God has a nature and he has stepped outside of that. Now the world means nothing to him. Socialism destroys people because when you take away God, you ultimately put them in that position. They may not recognize it. They may still behave in a moral way. They may still believe that meaning makes sense, but their philosophy really doesn't make sense anymore. And they, they're just acting on other people's uh, philosophies that they've given them. But think about it in your own life, in your own life, when you have this feeling, oh, life is meaningless, is it because you have stepped outside, you have created that meaningless life? When you are hounded by conscience and the left is always saying to you, don't make me feel guilty. Why are you shaming us? You're slut shaming us. Well, it's not me. It's not me. It is because you have stepped outside this moral web and gotten caught in that web. And if you are like Richard III and you know the moral web is there, you will be haunted by conscience. If you are like Macbeth and you have tried to shed it entirely, you will find a world that is meaningless. What then happens when you act within the moral framework? I would argue that then that is where you find the joy of life. The Clavenless Weekend is upon us. Want to talk about life being a walking shadow, a poor player that struts, and you know, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's here, the Clavenless Weekend. But we will be back on Monday. Survivors, gather here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Emily Jai. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.